Thank you. We'll get the volume adjusted on the microphone shortly. Uh, but I just wanted to welcome you all. Thank you for coming out to spend a winter evening with us. I am Martha Callis McLean. I am uh, Associate Vice President for Engagement at Pacific. And I'm just thrilled that you all chose to join us. We are sold out tonight, so thank you for bearing with us in this, yeah, right? Uh, in this uh, room that might sometimes feel a little too small. Uh, so I'm gonna introduce our presenter, uh, the Reverend Dr. Chuck Curry, and he's gonna talk to us about the early Christmas origins, uh, but I'm gonna tell you a little bit about him first. So Dr. Curry earned his Master's of Divinity at Eden Theological Seminary and his Doctor of Ministry degree at Chicago Theological Seminary. We may have to sacrifice the microphone, I apologize. Uh, Dr. Curry spent 17 years working directly on issues related to homelessness and housing before earning his Master of Divinity degree. As a minister in the United Church of Christ, he has worked to build interfaith coalitions to address critical national issues such as healthcare, gun violence, climate change, and immigration reform. <laughs> and there's more. Now, Reverend Dr. Curry is currently an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. He works at Pacific, so he's my colleague at Pacific that we're very grateful to have. Um, and he serves as director of the Center for Peace and Spirituality, as well as university chaplain, and teaches. So we chose one of those three titles on his name tag tonight. Um, his academic work is focused on the intersection between theology and public policy. And then there's a long list here of places that he has appeared or his writing has appeared, um, including ABC World News Tonight, The New York Times, The LA Times, Washington Post, Newsweek, NPR, and The Huffington Post, where he's a regular contributor. So without further ado, I would like to welcome uh, Reverend Dr. Chuck Curry. Thank you. Well, y'all are uh, very generous to, uh, to have me here and to be uh, spending uh, some time with me tonight. I'm glad uh, to the opportunity to spend some time with, uh, with Boxer alum. Um, I was once a, a student myself at Pacific University, but I have the distinction of being the worst student uh, ever to have, have gone uh, to Pacific, and so they, they eventually sent me elsewhere. So the irony that I now teach at Pacific is uh, lost on, on no one, and I just wish both of my parents were alive to, to see it. Um, uh, but it's, uh, it's uh, fun to be at Pacific. It's a, it's a great community. We have uh, wonderful students, and I enjoy uh, the work that I do uh, very much. Uh, I, I moved here to the Portland area uh, in 1980, just in time uh, to watch Mount St. Helens erupt. Is, uh, <laughs> what I, uh, I like to tell folks, and I uh, lived right over here across uh, Cornell Road in Oak Hills, uh, for those of you who know the, the area at all. And, uh, and when I was a high school student, where we are standing is a field, and uh, if I, uh, in high school, had drank beer, it might have been in this field. Um, uh, so it's, uh, it's good that we're in a pub tonight. Um, it's, all, it's all legal now. Um, not that I would have done anything otherwise. But, but I'm excited to talk about uh, Christmas uh, with all of you. Uh, for me, as a, as a minister in the United Church of Christ, it's a, it's a very special time. It's a holy time for those of us um, who are Christian. Uh, but I also look at this, um, this holiday that we celebrate as, as an academic issue uh, to kind of dissect and, and tear apart a little bit and figure out how it is we came to understand Christmas the way that we understand it. And maybe we don't understand it the same way 
the early Christian church understood it. And that's what I want to talk to you about uh, tonight and hopefully not bore you too much in the meantime. So where do we learn about religion in the United States? Um, probably from Charlie Brown uh, and uh, from other uh, popular um, manifestations of uh, religious teachings in, in the media, uh, Christmas carols uh, that we sing around the holiday season that have um, absolutely no relationship to the, uh, the story of Jesus' birth, but we begin to think that they do because we repeat them so much. I don't know if any of you can find the literal little uh, drummer boy in uh, scripture, but, um, uh, but uh, apparently he was there and uh, it, just, it just got it got left out. A lot of times when we talk about uh, religion in the church, we have to recognize something that's important, and that's that there is a great deal of religious illiteracy, as we call it, in our society today, even about our own traditions that we might say that we are part of. The Pew Research Center, which does a lot of, uh, a lot of great uh, work on trying to chronicle the views of Americans on different issues, has a fantastic religion department. And every once in a while, they do what's called the religious landscape. And the last one that they did said that while religion is really very important in people's lives, that most Christians could not identify basic Christian history or Christian doctrines and didn't know where, where it was they came from. And I think as a, as a pastor and church, serving churches as I have as a university chaplain, I find that to be pretty true. Um, a lot of times we celebrate stuff just simply because it's the tradition that we are a part of, um, and it has value to us, it has meaning. The holidays are an opportunity for us to come together as families and to come together as friends, but we might not always understand exactly what it is that we're, we're celebrating. So as a, as a scholar, as a teacher, as a professor at Pacific, um, I use the method of historical criticism uh, to understand a little bit more about religion that you, you might not get in a typical sermon. There's a couple things I want to tell you about historical criticism. One is it's a method that's been used in seminaries and in churches for the last 200 years. If any of you have gone to church in the last 200 years, there's a pretty good chance that if your minister went to an accredited theological seminary, they learned about historical criticism, even if they were afraid to ever talk about it in the church. Because historical criticism makes us ask some really difficult questions, like did the stuff that we read about in the Bible actually happen? Is there a historical basis for that? And that can be a very, very uncomfortable topic to bring up, particularly around holidays like Christmas. So this is stuff I would not say in a sermon, for example. I would say it in a setting, setting like, like this to all of you. Um, the other thing about historical criticism that it's important to note is that it's mostly a white guy, European method of understanding scripture. And so it comes with certain limitations. I think you can learn an enormous amount from historical criticism, but if you are um, a Christian in Africa, if you are a Christian in Asia, historical criticism by itself probably is not going to, to do it for you. Um, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later. <coughs> so 
first thing I'll ask is, what does, what do the Christmas, actually, let me rephrase that in an articulate manner. What do the Gospels tell us about Christmas? We have four Gospels in the Bible. Can someone tell me what they are? And were they actually written in that order? No. No. So what order were they written in? Mark comes first. Matthew, Luke, and John. So the first gospel that we have is the gospel of of Mark. But what's the earliest writings that we have in the Christian New Testament? Paul. The writings of Paul come before anybody else. And what does Paul say about the birth of Jesus? Says Jesus was born. (laughs) Which we, we knew. We knew. And what does Mark say about uh, the birth of Jesus? Nothing. Nothing about the birth of Jesus. And then we get into Matthew. And what does Matthew tell us about the birth of Jesus? The wise man. Quite a bit. There's the genealogy um, in, um, in Matthew that uh, traces uh, Jesus' lineage all the way back to the beginning of time. Um, you hear about uh, his birth, uh, you hear about uh, the virgin birth, um, but most of it is taken up by the genealogy. That's what we hear the most about in the Gospel of Matthew. It's not until we get to the Gospel of Luke that we begin to hear a more um, in-depth tale of uh, Jesus' uh, early birth and uh, his, his early life. So what might that tell us about the early Christian church and their understanding of Jesus' birth. It might tell us that they weren't particularly interested in it, that it wasn't of particular value. But for Christians today, the birth of Jesus, particularly the virgin birth narrative of Jesus, is a litmus test for a lot of Christians. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, then you're not a Christian. And I hear this from um, a lot of people. I do a lot of social media stuff. If you've ever uh, been on social media, you know you talk to social media and then social media talks back to you. And it's not always very pleasant uh, when, it, when it talks back to you. And what I hear from a lot of people is, well, you're not a real Christian. You're, you're a fake Christian because you don't believe in this, this doctrine that's been set up, this, this orthodox uh, doctrine that's been set up, or you question the orthodox doctrine that's been set up. So you can't, you can't be a real Christian. And you know, my response to that always is, well, I've dedicated my life to the Christian church. I've gone to seminary. I've got two degrees from two different seminaries. Um, I, I think I'm actually a Christian. I mean, that's, that's, that's my faith. That's what I believe in. But I'm also part of a church and a part of a denomination, the denomination that founded Pacific University, actually, the United Church of Christ, that doesn't have doctrine. Uh, we don't have creeds. Um, we say that we believe in the freedom of people in our denomination to come to their own conclusions about difficult theological issues. And that's not the same for every church, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay that people have different viewpoints about these issues and come to different conclusions. I certainly don't think that I have all the answers about them. But I do think that, um, that it's important to at least talk about these issues and talk about them in a way that's respectful to one another so we can discuss them without saying, well, you're not really in the club anymore if you're going to talk about this stuff. So we have the nativity uh, stories that are in the early, uh, early Christian church. And there's a a great book about this, by the way, if you're looking for a book to read later. And somebody asked me to give you all 
book ideas, and I, I should have done that beforehand. But there's one by Marcus Borg and uh, John Crossan called The First Christ, uh, Christmas, which is a, a great read. If you don't know those two, um, Marcus Borg was a, a biblical historian at uh, Oregon State University for many years. He passed away about uh, two years ago, I think now. Uh, John Crossan is uh, still alive and, and writing. He's a former uh, Catholic priest uh, who became a, a biblical um, historian. And so one of the things that they say is that the stories about the birth of Jesus probably came about a little bit later in the tradition. So if we look at, at Mark, anyone want to guess when the Gospel of Mark, that first Gospel, was written? How, how many years after the death of Jesus? Anyone know? 200. So, so probably around 50 to 70 years after the, the death of Jesus. And those early writings of Paul that we talked about are probably around 30 years after the, the death of Jesus. So these stories all began as, as oral tradition, right? People sitting around tables just like we're sitting around now and, and sharing stories. And the, for the early Christians, the very first Christians, the one that Paul was associated with, the ones that the author of Mark was associated with, the virgin birth story just wasn't part of the story. What was really important to Paul and what was important to the author of Mark was Jesus' teachings, Jesus' ministry. Um, it wasn't until later that we began to see, um, see other stuff. So there's, there's no mention in Mark or Paul about the, the birth of Jesus. So we finally get it um, uh, later. We get it in uh, Matthew and uh, we get it in John, uh, Luke. Uh, again, we get back to Luke and there's uh, no mention of um, uh, the birth of Jesus in the final gospel. Although, you know, the, Luke is such an interesting gospel. It's so different than the other gospels. It's, it's not tied together. Um, and it's, it's really a, a great theological interpretation of early Christianity, about 200 years or so after the death of Jesus. And in, and in Luke, Jesus is present at the very beginning of creation. You know, I mean, Jesus goes way back. Uh, he doesn't need to be born because he was there at the very start of everything. Um, but we do hear about it in, in Matthew, and we do hear about it um, in Luke. And, and their stories... Are, are similar in, in some respects. There is, of course, uh, the virgin birth, but there's also a lot of details uh, that, are, that are very different. If I had time tonight and I thought about doing this, I would actually read both of the stories to you so you could hear those differences, but it would just take too long and we'd be here until tomorrow morning. And I really um, talk too much um, already. So. One of the questions that Borg and Crossan uh, come to in their book is, how do we hear these stories? What kind of stories are these when we're hearing about the virgin birth and the early life of Jesus' <coughs> baptism and ministry? What's their purpose? And what do the authors intend to tell with these stories? What is the, the story that they are trying to tell? Are these stories fact or are they fiction? As one of my seminary professors once told me, there was no one from the New York Times hanging around in Bethlehem uh, to chronicle this. Um, and this is where we get into a lot of fights between what we sometimes call mainline or progressive Christianity and more fundamentalist or conservative Christianity. Um, we get into fights about who gets to sit at the table uh, depending on how they interpret these stories. 
some people will say that if these stories did not happen the way that either the Gospel of Matthew says or the Gospel of Luke says, even though they're different stories and they contradict each other in places, some people will say if these stories did not happen, then that means the Bible itself is just a fable. It's just a story and there's nothing important to it. And others would certainly uh, disagree with this. Borg and Crossan would tell you that there's a third option because you've got on the one side a group of people saying, if these stories are not literally true, they're not important. And then you've got some people on another side, and I'm not sure, these are not like political sides all the time, like left and right, so I'm not gonna give you a place where they sit at the table, but you got one side saying that these stories are not true, they're not important, so you have to, you have to think of them literally. You've got another group that says, if these stories um, are not true, then we can just be atheists. And um, I'm, by the way, I don't have trouble with anyone who's atheist. My wife is atheist, and so um, I tell everyone we have a mixed marriage at home. Um, <laughs> um, uh, but you've got some people who just dismiss it out of hand, and they're not angry about it. They just um, they just say there's 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 nothing important to this. Borg and Crossan will say there's there's a third option to look at these stories and say that there's truth in them, there's meaning in them, even if the stories themselves are not literally true. Does that make any sense? Does that, does that sound, sounds reasonable to people? So all of this, this divide and this debate really did not arise until the Enlightenment uh, period. The Enlightenment brought um, a, a lot of important uh, changes and you've all studied them. You, you're all Pacific graduates for the most part, so you all got a lot of Enlightenment stuff in your classes, right, in your humanities courses. And in, in the Enlightenment, before the Enlightenment, people took these stories, for the most part, although there are exceptions to every rule, right, took these stories verbatim. You know, it was, it was written in the Bible, even though there were inconsistencies in the stories about the birth of Jesus, people didn't necessarily recognize those as being inconsistencies. And they just took them as basically as, as fact. The Enlightenment changed everything. The Enlightenment came around and it asked a whole new set of questions. You know, one of them is that people read the Bible without the assistance of, of priests and leaders of the church. They read them for themselves. And when they started reading it for themselves, they said, you know, there are some inconsistencies in these stories and I've got questions about that. And other fields of study began to play into the study of Christianity, like archeology. span We started to, to look and say, well, if this place was mentioned in the Bible, for example, this town, can we find any evidence that this town existed? Or can we find any evidence that this event actually occurred using other tools besides just theology to study religion? And all of, all of that began to get inter, intermingled once the Enlightenment came around. And as, as Borgen Crossan said, the Enlightenment led many people to think that truth and factuality are the same. Its mindset was and is concerned with the distinction between truth and superstition, truth and fable, truth and traditional authority, truth and belief. And that's been the primary scientific way of, of knowing that people have. But there's, a, there's another, another way to look at this. And that's through interpretation. Now, everybody interprets the Bible. And this will come as a surprise to some of the people who write me on social media. 
I am told all the time there is no interpreting the Bible. There is one way to understand the Bible and no other way. And the people who will write me that will then start fighting with the other people who write me that because they, they disagree on what that way is. We've always interpreted the Bible. We interpret it based on our, our education, for example. That will determine in some ways how we interpret the Bible. Our, our social location may help us uh, interpret the Bible. Meaning, for example, if I were a low-income worker in El Salvador in the 1980s, or a black person living under apartheid in the 1980s, I might read the Bible differently than Chuck Curry living in O'Kills in the 1980s with a mom and dad who are doing pretty well, right? So our, our income, our gender may change the way we read these stories. Our race may change the way we read these stories. Um, so all of this factors into our interpretation and it always has no matter what anybody says. So I want to ask a, a little bit of a broader question just to give us some perspective, hopefully, and that is, what is the Bible? Well, for one, it's a collection of stories, right? As I said before, all, all of it, from the Hebrew scriptures, which sometimes Christians call the Old Testament to the New Testament, start out as, as oral tradition. People sitting around campfires, people sitting around, uh, around tables and sharing stories. And then it gets, it gets written down, eventually. And then people come around and they rewrite the stories. And sometimes those rewriting of stories are ideological interpretations. Um, sometimes they're cultural reinterpretations of the story. But all of that happens through a, a long process of hundreds and hundreds of years before the Bible actually becomes what we now know today as the Bible. So Richard Nelson is a, a good um, a biblical historian who I read a lot of his work when I was in seminary. And he wrote, that the Bible is a form of literature that can be called history, see if I can pronounce the word, histi historiography, whose writing function is to narrate the past and to make judgments about it. So that's a little bit different than, say, being a reporter from the New York Times, whose job is to write about what the events are that occurred at the White House today without probably putting a interpretation onto it. That's what a columnist does, right? You see the difference? In some ways, the Bible is more like a column, where people do interpret what is happening or, or what has happened. And as Nelson says, you make an ideological and interpretive enterprise out of that whole process that becomes the Bible for us. Now, Nelson is very careful to say that while the Bible is not literal history, it's not the same thing as saying that the Bible is fiction. Uh, because the Bible is not fiction, a lot of it is actually based on things that do in fact occur or have occurred over time. But the authors are taking those as oral tradition, writing them down, and, and rewriting them down. So the game of telephone, which you're all familiar with. So if we started right here with Kathy, who's brilliant, by the way, and we told Kathy about the birth of this guy named Jesus, this little baby named Jesus. And we gave her some details about it, and she started to pass that story around the table like a game of telephone. By the time we got to Eric Cannon, who's also brilliant over here, the story would be different. Now, if you take that story and separate it, in some cases by 700 or more years, 
and by, by cultures, and you separate it not just from how it's told orally, but how it's told writtenly, and how people rewrite those stories and, and change them, the stories might not even be recognizable by the time they get from one end of another. But that doesn't mean that Eric at the very end can just ignore the history that's out there. He's got to base it on something. So we get the important part that Jesus was born, but we might not know, you know all of the details. We might not know if there was, for example, a little drummer boy at the birth of Jesus. Walter Bergman is also another great biblical historian who taught for many years at Eden Theological Seminary in St. Louis, where I went, he wrote, and he was speaking specifically about the Old Testament, but this applies to the New Testament as well, that rather than reportage, like a reporter at the New York Times, it's a sustained memory that has been filtered through many generations of the interpretive process with many different interpreters imposing certain theological intentionalities on the memory that continues to be reformulated. And this has even happened you know, in our, our history here in the United States. Some of you may have heard the story on NPR the other day about the slave Bible. Did you hear about this? This was a Bible that was given to slaves when they were brought um, to the colonies that had all of the stuff about revolution and freedom from slavery taken out of it before it was given to the slaves. I've seen um, an old South Carolina, that's, that's where I'm from originally, old South Carolina um, baptismal book that was given to <laughs> slaves where they are told specifically if they hear anything about freedom from oppression, which Jesus talks about a good deal, they're to ignore that because it doesn't apply to them. So when they take their baptismal vows, they were told they had to, they had to do that. So, so even in, in more recent history, we've had moments where people have done this. I'll give you two more. There is a, a green Bible that, was, uh, that came out about 10 years ago. And, and I like the green Bible. They highlight everything in it that deals with the earth or nature in green. And it's supposed to be a Bible. It's all on recycled paper, of course. It's supposed to be a Bible that helps you better understand our commitment to the environment as people of faith. Now, I think people of faith do have a commitment to the environment and that it's very strong. Reading this Bible, I think that it um, does a, a terrible, terrible job of helping us understand that uh, because it takes so much of the Bible out of context and tries to apply it to a, um, uh, an issue that, that isn't simply related to a lot of the stuff that's in the Bible. I'm not saying the environment's not important for people of faith. I think it is a central paramount. We were given stewardship of creation um, in the beginning of Genesis. It's there, but the Green Bible plays with it a little bit too much. There's also a new Bible that's come out, a new translation, where they this reminds me of the Slave Bible a lot, um, by a conservative group that takes out all mention of social justice in the Bible, uh, which does not leave very much uh, left uh, in the Bible. Uh, but you see, you see how it is. So there have been different responses to, um, uh, to these different interpretations, uh, these different uh, processes, uh, particularly from the Enlightenment point on. Probably the most visible thing, which I mentioned earlier, is that there are a group of Christians who will insist that what is in the Bible is, is factual, um, that there's, there's no debate um, over it. Uh, and there are others who will just um, 
re reject uh, these stories out of hand uh, and want to have absolutely nothing to do with uh, Christianity. And I think I've already gone over that a good bit. What Borg and Crossan come to as a conclusion about this is that they say they best understand the nativity stories and their meanings as treating them neither as fact or fable, but as parable. Parable is a form of speech. Um, it is a way of using language. One of the early um, practitioners of historical criticism in the Bible was C.H. Dodd, and he defines uh, parable as, as a metaphor. You know, these are stories that are they're a metaphor. They mean something besides um, just plain facts. That they're drawn from nature or from common life. That they are arresting. That uh, when people hear these stories, it stops and makes them uh, think. And it also leaves room for doubt in these stories about what exactly they mean. There are some people who talk about faith these days as not being about certainty, but about living the questions within faith. And I think that's um, what C.H. Uh, uh, Dodd was, was getting to. Once we move past the Enlightenment and to the period that we are now in, which is oftentimes called the postmodern period, we're able to ask some other questions about the scripture. Not just did this happen or, or did this not happen, but what are the meanings behind these stories that might be important to us right now? Is there anything of, of value in those stories? We get to look beyond just mere facts for truth. So again, from Borg and Crossan, they say that to, to look at these, these parallels, or parables, excuse me, that are in the uh, early Christian uh, tradition, is to approach the birth stories um, is the approach the vast majority of scholars these days look at. Moreover, it has broader uh, application for biblical narratives generally. It is always more than literal, the more than factual meaning of biblical stories that matters most. That is why they are told again and again uh, because of their surplus of meaning. It's important to move away from the debate that divides Christian fundamentalists from Christian progressives, from did this occur to what do these stories mean for us right now? So like the parables told by Jesus, and Jesus himself spoke in parables, his stories are, are just filled with parables. The birth stories are also subversive. They subverted the world in which Jesus and early Christianity lived. And, and we'll talk about the, the context of that um, in just a minute. But remember that when Jesus was born, he was born into a period of time in which the land that he was a part of and the culture that he was a part of, the religion that he was a part of, was all controlled by the Roman Empire. He was living under occupation, and all of these stories are told under occupation. So in, in Matthew's story, there is a, a very strong attempt to link Jesus with Moses, to have him be, basically be the successor to Moses. So the story of Jesus is told 
almost word for word as the story of Moses was told, uh, to try and make them to be, to be similar um, and to give Jesus the kind of authority that Moses uh, would have. Luke's story is a little bit um, differently. Luke's story spends a lot more time talking about the role of women. For women, this is a big plus. This is a, this is a win for women in uh, Luke. Um, also, there is a, a great concern for the marginalized, uh, those who are living under occupation, and also the role of the Holy Spirit, which really comes into play um, uh, with Luke. So as I said before, you, you cannot hear the Christmas story without remembering the context in which it is all written. The um, birth story is recounted in the midst of occupation among a people who was long oppressed, and it offers a reality that brings hope and challenges to the political structures of the time. People oftentimes criticize me on social media, because like I said, I do that a lot, and they say, um, stay out of politics. They say, um, there's nothing that ties religion and politics together. And I say, well, except for the Bible, you know, and, and Jesus, um, because it's, it's all a, a, a political story. And I'll give you some examples of this. So the, the birth of Jesus. Well, I, I actually, I'll, I'll, I'll do this first, and then I'll move on to that. Um, when we talk about the, the virgin birth of Jesus, it's very important to recognize that both within Jewish tradition and the Greek-Roman tradition, it was not unusual in this point in history to have stories told about virgin births. These stories were told to, to lift people up, uh, to give them a status of divinity, um, so that they could rule over other people. And knowing what you do about Jesus and the time that he lived, and the folks who lived at the same time he did, can you think of who might also have had a virgin birth story at that time? Caesar. 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 So the head of the Roman Empire is said to have been born from a virgin. And now we have Jesus, who has come and is challenging the Roman Empire. And he's born as a virgin. So this is a... Um, this is a... a passage of scripture that I wanted you to hear uh, because uh, uh, it's one that I deal with a lot. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him and what he said. So they sent their disciples to him saying, teacher, we know that you're sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show no deference for no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose head is on this and whose title? And the answer, the emperor's. Then Jesus said to them, give therefore to the emperor the things of the emperors and to God the things there to God. And when they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and they went away. So what history teaches us, and this is where historical criticism comes in handy, history teaches us is that there were two coins in use in this period of history. One coin that was used by the Jewish people who were oppressed, and the other 
that was used by the Roman emperor in the Roman Empire. And so Jesus hears that these people are questioning him. He asks them for a coin. He knows who they are. He knows that they're with the Roman Empire. And what do they show him? A Roman coin. So he says, give to the emperor what is the emperor's. <clears throat> this is basically Jesus' way of flipping them off and saying, everything belongs to God. Nothing belongs to Rome. But they don't get it. The virgin birth story can be understood as a way of affirming that God is God and not Caesar. Did the virgin birth happen? That's the wrong answer, the wrong question to be asking in the first place. You can either believe it as fact or not believe it as fact. It really doesn't matter to me. But what is important to the early Christian tradition, to the early church, is that Jesus, in his ministry, affirmed that God was God and not Caesar. And that has implications for all of us today. Charles is taking a picture of the slide, so I'm gonna wait for just one second. Yes. The right question for all of us who, who consider ourselves Christian is how to follow Jesus and his teachings. And there's a lot of ways that people can answer that question. That's the really interesting part of Christianity for me. I wrote an op-ed about Christmas that's going to be published um, this coming week where I'm trying to reflect on the times that we live in right now. So right before y'all sat down for dinner, uh, a federal judge struck down Obamacare uh, and said that the 30 million people uh, covered under Obamacare have to lose their health insurance immediately. Uh, this is right at the end of the, the sign-up period. Well, tomorrow's the end of the sign-up period. Um, healthcare for me is a, is a human right. I worked on the Affordable Care Act. I have a picture of myself in my office sitting with President Obama when he's thanking religious leaders who helped work on the Affordable Care Act. Healthcare is a human right. I believe that as a Christian. I'm looking at stuff on the news right now, like little children being tear gassed, who are immigrants coming over from Mexico. And immigration is a huge, complicated issue. It's one that I've worked on for an incredibly long time. But I will tell you this, there is nothing Christian about tear gassing children or immigrants coming over. We shouldn't be meeting them with bullets and guns. We should be meeting immigrants with food and medical aid. That's the Christian response, as I understand it. And people can tell me that I'm wrong. I'm also reading about this girl who died yesterday, seven years old, who died coming across the border, who was starving, who was thirsty. And I hear those words from Jesus saying that if you did not give me food, if you did not give me water, he has bad things to say about people like that. <laughs> so there's this poem that I love that I have shared in, in Christmas sermons before, and it's an interpretive exercise on what Christian means. It's by Howard Thurman, who's an African-American civil rights leader, but best known as an African-American theologian. And he wrote this, that when the star of the angels is still, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flocks, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, 
to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among the people, to make music in the heart. I say amen, Howard Thurman. And that, to me, is the meaning of Christmas. It's not what city was Jesus actually born in, because you've got different stories about that in the Bible. It's not whether he was born from a virgin birth or not. I understand what that story does. I understand the purpose of elevating Jesus to the, the level of Caesar. I, under, I understand all that. What's important to me is the message that, that Jesus taught, one where he said very plainly, that God comes before empire, and for God, what is important is how we treat the least of these in society, the most vulnerable among us. And so, both as an academic and as a clergy person, and I'm really not sure that you can divorce those two, at least in, in, in good traditions anyway, um, that's the most important thing for, for me. And so, as a pastor, I have the ability uh, to speak for five to six hours without breathing. Um, it's, um, it, was, uh, it was given to me during my birth, and, uh, uh, but, I, but I wanted to um, have an opportunity to hear your thoughts and to answer questions that y'all might have, and to thank you again so much for being here tonight. <laughs>